Have you ever wondered how you could start to buy real estate without using any of your money? Well, that's exactly what we're going to get into today with our guest, Soli. I love chatting with her. Soli is a real estate entrepreneur. She has 40 units. She's 25 years old. She retired from her nine to five at 23 years old. She's been able to raise millions of dollars of private money. We go into her journey investing out of state, why she chose Cincinnati, Ohio to begin with, her tips for how to invest out of state and be able to build that team that can really support you, and so much more. My name's Sophia. I'm the host of The Shit Show of My 20s. My mission is to make your 20s less of a shit show and to really be able to inspire you guys with the show and to be able to get so many insights from so many incredible people, and hopefully you can see yourself in some of these stories. So without any further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much, Soli, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s so far. Feel free to include any shit show moments we might resonate with. Let's start there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm currently 25, and so I'm still in the smack middle of my 20s, but I feel like sometimes I'm 40 uh, because of everything I've, uh, I guess, been through so far. So we can kind of start with a quick introduction. I own 40. I'm actually based in the Bay Area, so in a very expensive rental market, but in order to get started investing in real estate, I had to invest out of state. So I own 40 rental properties all over 2,000 miles away in Ohio and in Georgia. And now I love to teach other people how to achieve financial freedom through real estate. So I started investing back when I was 22 years old. I was a senior in college and the pandemic hit and changed everybody's world. And so I was working full time at the time in another real estate type job. And the pandemic really shut down everything and and made me kind of reprioritize what was important to me in life. And so one thing that was really important was reaching sort of like financial independence, being able to control my own time and to work on everything I wanted to work on when I wanted to work on it. And so that's kind of how I started off on my journey to real estate investing. We can dig into any of it because obviously there's a lot of a lot of stuff from going from zero to 40 units in less than three years at 22 years old. And so if you want to pick a point, I'm happy to start diving in. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible journey. I'm curious, like at 22, like what was it that kind of sparked that in you? Like, I know I have to have this income coming in from real estate. I feel like that's a big realization to have like in your early 20s. So I'm curious kind of what led up to that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a weirdo in my uh, college days. I didn't really end up partying. I ended up working almost full-time sophomore through senior year. So I grew up in a family that didn't have a ton of money, where money was always a struggle. I went to a super affluent school, but I was on a full scholarship, and I was one of the you know, few people who were on a full scholarship. So I was always surrounded around, you know, kind of people who had money and I didn't have any of that. So I worked my butt off in my corporate job starting in sophomore year. And then when I got into my senior year, I was supposed to be starting my full-time job in office leasing. That was my job. And as you can imagine, when the pandemic hit, no one was looking for office space. It just 
Nobody wanted it. Everyone was working from home. And so it was a 100% commission-based job. And I think at that point, I realized that I was going into a super unstable career and that I could be making $0 for a long time, especially in that you know economic climate. And so I had learned a little bit about real estate, especially from listening to Bigger Pockets. It's basically like the biggest real estate podcast in the country. And I decided that that was the path I wanted to take to start building that passive income. And I'm curious, like for you, like, I love to go into like the numbers at the very beginning. Like what was the amount that you're starting to save up to before you started investing in real estate? Yeah. So I saved up about $50,000 when I was graduating from college as a senior. And so I kept about maybe $20,000 of that as an emergency fund. And I bought my first rental property for $100,000 in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so I put down around $25,000 for the down payment and the closing costs. Cool. And like, did you have any like scarcity come up for you about like, okay, this is like a good amount of money out of my savings that's going to be going towards this investment? Like, what if this investment goes wrong? I'm curious if you were like super confident at the beginning or if you had any limiting beliefs at that point that you had to unravel. I think I was nervous because it was such a, it was a lot. I mean, it's a lot of money for even a senior in college to have. And so, you know, seeing it leave my bank account was really scary. But I think what helped is that I knew that real estate wasn't going to go from $100,000 to $0 in value, even if I made every mistake I could. So I, so that's the great part about real estate is that it holds its value, even if the economy kind of drops. It can only drop so much. It's still a house and people still want it. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, worst case scenario, I have to sell this house and I have to take a loss but I don't lose everything. Second, I guess I thought I was so young. I was 22 years old. I did not know what I was getting into, but I also thought, hey, worst case scenario, most people my age start off at 22 with $0 graduating out of college. And so if I lose this money, then I'm worst case, I'm just where everybody else is and I can always earn it back. So I think I had some, I was happily naive at what I was getting into. And I also started really young. And so I had, I guess, the benefit of being able to work and earn that money back. I love it that you broke it down to like, what's the worst that can happen? Because sometimes we just get stuck in our head versus thinking like, okay, this is the worst I can accept that and I can build from there. What's the best that can happen? You know, I have this portfolio and I have that to lean off of. And like, what was it about Ohio in particular that you're like, this is the market, like I want to start investing in? Everybody loves Ohio, right? <laughs> but no, I, I went for work. I um, was doing a, a big commercial deal in Cincinnati before the pandemic hit. And so I had went and toured the market and I was so surprised. My mom's from the Midwest, but from like a smaller town. And so every time I went, I was like, well, you know, it's not that fun. And, but when I went to Cincinnati, it was really hustling and bustling. Like the food was amazing. It was so alive. People were out and running a lot of young people. One of the people I met out there was a real estate investor and he owned maybe eight or nine rental properties. And so he was telling me about all the returns and all the growth in the market. And he was able to kind of walk me through the market. And so when I was thinking about investing out of state, because I couldn't afford to invest in the Bay Area, I you know thought about Cincinnati. I said, okay, I know one person who who's going to be my competitive advantage. And that was it. I just chose that market. I didn't look into anything else. When you were looking at properties, were you like actually there looking at all the properties for your first one? Or were you investing from out of state kind of looking at Zoom videos 
or were you able to walk the property? Nope. It was all online. Yeah. So I bought it. I had a realtor who helped me, who walked through the properties for me, sent me some pictures, assured me that it was there. I had my friend who also, for my first rental property, I was really nervous that I would buy the wrong one. And so I had him also walk through the property and confirm that it was a decent property in a decent location. And so I bought everything without seeing it. And then after I closed on it, I actually flew out and saw it for the first time. And is there anything in particular that you look at when you're like not able to see the property? Like, are you pulling from like certain stuff, making sure certain stuff's not outdated? Are there like specific questions you're asking to make sure like this deal is going to work? I'm curious on your process there. Yeah. So usually when you buy a property, you first have your real estate walk agent walk through and kind of check things and check out the general condition. But before you actually purchase the property, typically you have a home inspector go through and check, you know, is the electric working? Is the plumbing working? Is the roof have a hole in it? All those things that would be very expensive items to fix. And they'll basically make a list for you of what's working and not working and what needs to be replaced and when. And then you can either negotiate off of the price depending on what surprises you found, or you can just you know accept it and some houses need to be renovated um, and move on. So I actually did a small renovation on my property. It was about $15,000. I put it on a credit card actually. <laughs> and then um, that's how I completed my first renovation. So I flew out there, did a, did some of it DIY, discovered that I was not really good at DIY projects, hired a contractor to finish the rest of it, and then paid off that credit card. And what, I'm curious what the 15000 got you, because that seems like a little for like a renovation. Like that seems like a really small budget. It depends where you are in the country. So in California, you could probably paint a house for $15,000 and that's it. But if you're in the Midwest, the things are just all around just cheaper. So I refinished the floors. I installed a lot of new flooring in different areas. I repainted. I uh, redid the kitchen in the back slash part of it it was DIY so I redid all the cabinets myself I did all the backsplashing myself with zero experience so that was fun but it was just generally it was a very cosmetic renovation nothing crazy had to be done just updating painting fixtures that sort of thing and from there did you keep that first property or where'd you go from there I did keep it. I still own it today. And so I basically used up all my money to buy that first property and then caught the real estate bug and wanted to continue to scale my portfolio. And so I bought my second property five months later. I didn't have any more money. So I basically, I was sharing my journey on Instagram and I guess my mom was watching again I didn't um I didn't grow up with the family with money and so I'd never ever ask you know hey do you want to invest in a deal because I didn't even think she had money and so she reached out and said she'd love to invest in my next deal and I was like that was kind of a light bulb moment of like whoa I could use other people's money to buy real estate and with her money I bought a triplex so that was three units. So that was within my six months of investing, I actually bought five units. Do you have like a preference of like single family versus duplex or multifamily? Not really. I, I like a small multifamily a lot. So I own a lot of single families, a lot of duplexes, a couple triplexes, a five unit and a 10 unit. And so I do kind of prefer the duplex triplex type of properties just because you get great tenants and they keep their value. So, and from your mom investing, I'm curious with like 
private money and doing getting other investors how did you go from there and were able to get other investors who did you start to pitch and how did that kind of process look like yeah so after my mom lent me private money that's kind of when i learned about the whole world of private money and started reading and researching and talking about it a lot more on instagram i think everybody was wondering how i funded my deal since i obviously used up all my money and so they saw me scale really quickly and they're like oh how did you, how did you scale so quickly without any more money and so I started talking about private money. And from there, people started reaching out on Instagram saying, how do I become a private lender too? I want to put my money to work. I want to earn you know, double digit returns backed by real estate. And so because of that, I ended up gaining a bunch of private money lenders from Instagram. That's really cool. And like for getting them from Instagram, I'm curious, like your strategy there in terms of like content, is there anything you make sure you do so you're able to capture all of those? At first there was no strategy. It was just, I talked about it and then they came and I would basically jump on calls with them and tell them about my business. And when a deal came up, I'd bring it back to them and say, you know, here's the details of the deal. Are you interested in investing? But nowadays, I think I just like to talk about how I use private lenders and kind of go from more of the educational perspective of like, hey, you can earn steady returns and be a passive investor in real estate. I know a lot of people just don't think that that's even an option. They kind of think they have to buy the rental property they have to do the work, they have to be a landlord, or they have to invest in some big syndication where they have their money locked up for five years. But there is another option, you can be a private investor for people like me and earn, you know, really steady passive returns without doing anything. In order to be like a private money investor, how much money is that typically that you need to be able to bring to a deal? It depends on what you try to invest in. So if you're investing in like a formal syndication where you basically gather a bunch of investors and buy a property, it can be very low. Like maybe it's $10,000, $15,000, $20,000. When I first started, I had a minimum of around like $50,000 to invest, but oftentimes my deals are more like around $100,000. I think a lot of people are surprised at how much money is just kind of sitting on the sidelines. I think with the stock market right now, you know, returns are very volatile. You could put it inside your savings account, but inflation is going to crush your purchasing power. And so people are really looking for a more steady return backed by someone that they also trust. And so I think that's a big thing is I've built a lot of my brand on Instagram and people have watched me every single day for three years. And so they feel like they know me my reputation is strong because, and I care about it. And so I'm not going to screw people over because it would be very public. And so that's kind of how I built it out. It's been, I've raised many millions of dollars off of Instagram to fund my projects. And it's been primarily the way I've grown to 40 plus units by leveraging other people's money and also helping them build wealth while doing that. And like, what type of return are they usually getting? And I'm curious how you structure it, right? Because like, once they give you your, their money, are they getting paid out on like a monthly basis? Or how does that kind of work? And then do you have like some sort of term in there? Like if I sell the property in five years or something like that, I'm curious how you structure yours. So the way I raise private money is, is short term for deals. And so I do a lot of what's called the Burr strategy in real estate. So you buy a property. Have you heard of the yeah. Burr strategy? Okay. It stands for buy, rent, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. So you buy a value add property. You renovate it, you add value, and then you rent it out to a tenant, and then you can go refinance it with a bank and pull out your initial investment. And it's a way to essentially recycle your money over and over again. And so you can use your own money to buy one of those properties, or you can use other people's money to buy one of those properties. And so I typically 
do that that way so that I can recycle people's money a lot faster. Especially if you're meeting people online, I think people are uh, maybe are a little bit more nervous to have their money locked up for five years. I think that's a long time for someone that you don't have a trusted, like close relationship with. They don't know if they're going to need the money. And so I find that people are more interested in the beginning in more short-term lending. Maybe it's like nine or 12 months that they have their money wrapped up in a deal. And then I refinance and I pay them back. The terms vary. I can say that generally private money will range from about eight to 12% on a return. Sometimes people pay monthly. Sometimes people pay at the end of the term when you refinance the deal and just kind of pay it back all in a lump sum. The great thing about private money is it's all negotiable. You're not working with a financial institution. And so it's an individual to me. And however it works for me and it works for them, that's how we're going to do the deal. And I'm curious with that strategy, like with the rates increasing and different variables, like is there anything that you do to like protect yourself with like the values and like the rates increasing, or I'm curious kind of like your thoughts there. Yeah. I mean, when you're refinancing nine months or a year out, sometimes it's hard to project what the rates are going to be. And so you just have to keep it very conservative where right now, I mean, you try to stay up to date on what the Fed's doing and what they plan to do, because they do talk a lot about what they plan to do and you forecast very conservatively. And so obviously we're not going to underwrite 5% interest rates right now on a refinance because odds are that's not going to happen. If it does happen, then great. And if it doesn't happen, then all of our underwriting has accounted for if the interest rates even increase from today. And also with like your numbers for like when you were thinking about like the after repair value, I'm curious with that too, have you ever had a deal where maybe the numbers didn't get met and you weren't able to exit out the deal the way you were planning on it? Or has like most of the time you've been able to like get the numbers pretty correct? I would say most of the time we're also very conservative on the ARV. And so I would say the majority of the time we hit it or we exceed it, worst case scenario, you can sell it if you really need to. Um, I've only had one ever time on a five unit where it did not appraise at all for what I was thinking it would appraise for. And I, I think it was kind of the appraiser maybe that had a, a different opinion on me on how it should be valued, but we didn't have time on the loan to get another second opinion or argue about it. And so we just chose to, I have a couple partners on that deal, but we chose to basically put our own capital in it. So that's the other thing is that when I first started, I was investing with no money. <laughs> and so if, if a deal went badly, I would have a lot less margin. But now that I've been investing for a couple of years, I've definitely built up my reserves. And so if a deal doesn't appraise for us, as much we can always put our own money in the deal it's so cool so interesting it's like such an interesting it's a different world, world. <laughs> it's so cool it's the world of real estate it's uh i never thought i'd be a real estate investor but the more i got into it the more you just it's kind of like getting a tattoo you just like get addicted and keep buying more real estate wow i'm curious like what your buy box is and like what your requirements are per property and i'm curious like has that changed from when you started till now have you reiterated or are you still kind of doing the same like requirements as the beginning? Yeah, so I built a portfolio of maybe 25 or so units in Cincinnati. And then I met a different partner. He lives in Augusta, Georgia, but he and he also owns a 
property management, and a construction firm. And so it was really nice because, you know, obviously your team is your most important asset. And so trying to find the right team is sometimes very difficult. So if you can have a partner who essentially owns the whole team, then it basically protects from a lot of the risk of having bad team members. And so I moved over from investing from Cincinnati over to Augusta, Georgia. And over there, they have a lot less multifamilies. It's a lot of single families. And so we're primarily investing in single families. Right now, we are flipping a lot of houses, actually, and trying to reinvest a lot of those funds into a bit nicer properties. I'm right now a big fan of midterm rentals. Are you, do you know midterm rentals, like uh, traveling nurse rentals, furnished rentals? It's a way to kind of increase cash flow on properties. And so now we're just trying to buy better assets with higher cash flow. So there's less headache. I'd love for you to go into that as well with like midterm versus short term pros and cons for anyone who's like not familiar and also like comparing it to long-term as well. Yeah, so long-term rentals are just basically 12-month leases that you would typically see on the market. So Zillow, if you're trying to find an apartment, they're unfurnished, 12 months or more, sometimes two years. Uh, Short-term on the way other spectrum is what you would consider Airbnb maybe. So if you're going on a vacation, you want to rent something for a couple of days, it's typically capped at 30 days. So anything less than 30 days is considered short term. Medium term is in between that. So it is typically it's 30 plus days, typically, you know, one month to six months and kind of caters toward people who are traveling professionals. There's a subsect of travel nurses that go around the country. And so Cincinnati happens to be a place where there's a lot of travel nurses that go there all the time. There's traveling CEOs, traveling professionals. Sometimes there's students who only need to be there for three months for an internship. And so you're kind of catering to the people who can't pay Airbnb pricing for three months. And so you're pricing it as a midterm rental, but it is also furnished. So there's the ease of moving in, staying for three months, and then moving out. The perk of a long-term rental is it's the most passive, so you can hand it off to a property manager. You don't really have much turnover. You don't have to worry about placing a tenant for a year, but you're going to have probably the least return because of that. Midterm rentals are a nice balance because you only have maybe two or three turnovers per year, and you have usually high-quality professional tenants, which I love because they're super nice all the time. And you can maximize your cash flow because you are getting that furnished rental rent. Short-term rentals, I'm not a huge fan of personally. I converted all my short-term rentals into midterm rentals. Maybe in the future, if I had like a high-end one, maybe I would be. But basically the con of that is they're pretty high maintenance. Even if you have a manager, there's just always things going wrong. Like sometimes someone leaves a bad review because something's not perfect. Or I don't know, maybe you make a bunch of money one month and you make no money the next month because there's not really that consistency from bookings. It's just kind of people book it when they feel like it. So personally, I like a little bit more stability. I find that I'm a little bit more risk averse. I like the consistency. And so I'm more, I would say, 90% 90% of my portfolio is long-term rental and 10% is midterm rental. And for those like midterm rentals, are you doing like renovations before you have them come in? What do you usually like look at in terms of like making sure it's ready to go and become a midterm rental? Yeah, so I always renovate them. There's different schools of thought. People always say that, you know, travel nurses want comfort over design, but I also find that there's a lot of travel nurses they are mostly women. And so they do value like cute designs. So I always try to make them look a little bit nicer 
and furnish them nicely as well. Like make sure they have a comfortable bed and a comfortable couch because at the end of the day, they just want to relax. And so that's kind of what I do, renovate it decently nicely so that they have all the comfort and furnish it and then lease it out. And where are you usually like advertising your midterm rentals? It's a combination. So I use Furnished Finder and Airbnb. Furnished Finder is where a lot of traveling professionals find their housing. It's a guy, it gets kind of like Craigslist, but for nurse traveling professionals. And the, but I find a lot of tenants like that. And then Airbnb is a big one as well. I'm just thinking about real estate and thinking about like all the different methods you could use. And it's so cool how like you can try this strategy. You can try this strategy. If this strategy doesn't work, you can go over here. Like it's so creative, even though... It is. Yeah, I do find that some people get caught up in that, though, because there's so many different strategies to try that they try to try all of them at once for their first property. And then they get frustrated or confused, or they just don't know how to start because they're so overwhelmed because there's so much to learn. And so I definitely say if you're just like just starting out, you just have to pick one and master it, maybe do it a couple times before you choose to move on to a different strategy. And how long do you give it before you know, okay, like this strategy is working or this strategy like totally is not working out for me? I mean, I guess it depends what working means. Like, is it, what's the problem with it? Are you just like not enjoying it? Or is it that it's not cash flowing enough? If it's not cash flowing, maybe you didn't buy a good deal. (laughs) Or maybe you just want to reprioritize your goals and want less properties with the most cash flow. And so and I think it all starts with setting the right goals, though, and asking yourself like what you want to get out of real estate. I know a lot of people who want the least amount of properties and the most amount of cash flow. And so if that's the case, you're probably looking for more of a furnished rental route. You just want super passive, hands off, hand it off to a property manager, and that's it. I would say go toward the long-term rental route. And so I guess if it's not working would be, my first question would probably be, what do you mean by it's not working? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking maybe like the cash flow. It's just not working. Yeah, I would say you have to analyze deals to make sure that they do cash flow and so that you know what you expect. You, the only reason that you would not cash flow is if you had some crazy unexpected event, like maybe your roof just gets a giant hole in it and you need to replace it unexpectedly. And that does happen, but you can always mitigate that risk by doing inspections on the front hand and making sure that you're buying a good rental property. And what's like the minimum cash flow that you look for in a property? I'd probably say uh, like minimum... A hundred and I know $100 per month. And I know that seems low, but we're also buying real estate with none of our own money and refinancing with a bunch of equity after like built equity into it. And so we essentially have $0 in the deal and are making $100 per month, which is an infinite return. And so from a cash on cash perspective, it's very good because we have no money invested in the deal. But I will say we are now selling a lot of our properties that are cash flowing around $100 to reinvest into better properties that are cash flowing $200, $300, $400, $500, that sort of thing. And for someone who's like using their own money, what would you say is like a good minimum? I would say look at the cash on cash return. So it's it's similar to like what you would say in the stock market, like my return is 10%. And so you want to look at how much you are making per year and divide that by what your cash investment is. And so it is important to look at monthly cash flow, but you have to think about how much money are you putting into the deal to make that much cash flow. I like to look for at least 10%. Some people might be happy with less than that if their money is just sitting in a bank account earning 0%. Maybe they're willing to take 8% or 7%. 
Maybe some people want higher returns and want to do furnished rentals. Usually furnished rentals are 15 or 20%. And so it depends on what they choose as, what someone would choose as their, I guess, their own buy box and what they would consider to be a good deal because a good deal is so subjective. Definitely. And going kind of going back to like when you have your team and when you start to find your realtor, find your lender, like what did you do then to really make sure like they were good, high quality, you knew they could trust them? I'm curious if you had like a checklist or anything you went through when you were going through that process. For my first property, no, I made all the mistakes with my team and I ended up firing all of them and not working with them again. And so I basically just took referrals and whatever referral came my way, I just accepted and said, great, you're hired. I ended up, I did end up firing them. And so after when I had to rebuild my team and find new people, there are a bunch of questions that you should ask. I think the most important is what percent of your clients are investors. There are a lot of say agents or lenders who only invest with retail clients. And so retail, meaning like they're buying it for their personal home. They want to live in it. It's their forever home. And that's a very different mindset from someone who's an investor and is just looking for numbers. And so if you're an investor friendly agent or lender, you're going to understand how to look at the numbers, analyze the numbers, estimate renovation costs, all that sorts of thing. And so you want to make sure that you do have an investor friendly team to help you with your investing journey. And I'm curious if there's anything that you look at too, in terms of like responsiveness. I feel like this is kind of like, sometimes you run into this issue, you have some who are like more responsive, less responsive. I'm curious if that's part of your checklist as well. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, especially agents, because it's so time sensitive. So if you want to put in a deal, if you if you don't answer for 24 hours, and you miss it, I mean, obviously, you have to have some grace if they're on vacation or something. But in the when you're in the heat of trying to find a deal, it is super imperative that you have someone who responds quickly and can write up that contract for you. And if they don't, then you're probably going to miss that hot lead. And so I would say, especially for agents, for lenders too, because I think that, you know, you want to make sure that they're fighting for you, that they can push your loan through on time. I would say that the best advice is to probably ask a local investor for referrals. And so if you can talk to a bunch of other local investors, then they would have already spent the time to kind of build out their team. And so if you can get all of the right referrals from them, if you can trust them, then you're going to save so much time for yourself because you're now using an already vetted team. I love uh, asking for referrals. It's great versus having to go through that process as well. I'm curious, like at the beginning, if you could go through like maybe those first few properties, some of the biggest mistakes that you made, some things that you're like, also, maybe like something that you see from your students make too at the beginning. Like, what do you feel like at the beginning is very easy to kind of skip over and do? Personally, it was the team for me. I totally did not even spend any time vetting my team members. And that was a mistake that I learned the hard way. I would say that for my students, though, I it's really more so the shiny object syndrome. And so I think we talked about it a little bit, but people get really um, distracted by watching what other people do. It's really easy to look on social media and be like, ooh, this person's investing in Chattanooga or Cincinnati or wherever they're investing and wanting to change up their decisions, whether it's a strategy, whether it's a market, anything like that. And and just getting too, too distracted that they change their answer for things every single week. And the, the reason that's so 
I guess, destructive for their journey is that they're just never going to give themselves time to really get to know the market, really dig in, to really build their team, to really gain uh, traction. And so I think there's a saying where it's like, a good team can overcome an average market, but a bad team cannot overcome an amazing market. And so I think I'm going to butcher that quote, but, but basically it's saying that you don't have to pick the perfect market. There is no perfect market. There are just, there's a lot of great markets. And if you have a great team, then they're going to help you succeed. If you have the most amazing market, which doesn't actually exist, but you have a bad team, then you're not going to be successful. You're not going to have a great time buying real estate. So I would say the shiny object syndrome and then not spending enough time trying to pick a market based off of where you have the best contacts. It's so easy to get distracted by shiny objects. So easy. So I love that you brought that up because we always want to go and say, oh, this person's doing this, this person's doing this. Maybe I need to change it. And I'm curious for you also, is there any other markets that you really love? And and what do you feel like is besides like having the team, is there any other factors that you look at in terms of that market? In terms of do you look at development, safety, schools? Is there anything else that you look at when you're buying as well? Yeah, so I invest in Augusta, Georgia as well, and some of the markets near South Carolina over there. So it's kind of two hours outside of Atlanta. But I like to look for good, steady job growth and population growth. So areas where people are moving, where industry is is growing, because that's going to mean more demand for real estate, which means more tenant demand, and also the prices of real estate are going to go up. So that's definitely something to look into. I like to look for a good, stable economic driving factor. So what are the industries that are driving growth? In Cincinnati, a lot of it is like medical. There's a lot of consumer staples, Procter and Gamble's there. General Electric is headquartered there. And so there's a lot of like really good, I guess, safe companies that are going to withstand a recession. In Augusta, Georgia, there's military, there's manufacturing, and there's also medical over there. And so the industries are very stable. So population growth, job growth, great stable industries, also landlord friendliness. And so as you know, probably in California, if you want to evict someone, I heard a crazy story where it was like, took a year to evict somebody in California. And so if your tenant's not paying rent and you try to take them to court and it takes you a year, you're going to probably go dry. Your pockets are going to be empty by trying to pay your mortgage and not getting rent. And so if you can invest in more, I guess, landlord-friendly states, you'll be protected in case of something like that. So that's what I look at too. And then also areas where it'll cash flow. And so I'm invested in lower cost markets in Cincinnati. The average home value is probably, I don't know, maybe $200,000 or less. And in Augusta, Georgia, there's definitely pockets where you can buy properties for under $100,000. And so they're going to find the best cash flow. So that's what I'm looking for in a market. And I'm curious, like in terms of like the neighborhood and the neighborhood safety, do you go towards properties like in good neighborhoods? Do you go towards properties where maybe there's more crime? I'm curious your thoughts there. Yeah, the more crime, the better cash flow, usually, typically. But I will say I try to stay away. Like we have a grading system in real estate where it's class A, class B, class C, class D, I guess. Class D is like you don't want to walk there at night. So don't invest there. Class C is more of like renters by necessity. So a lot of just workers, people who maybe are a little bit lower income, a lot of subsidized housing. It can have higher crime, but it's not like games or shooting it up or anything. Class A on the farther end of the spectrum is like new construction, super nice houses. And class B is sort of in between. So, you know, mixture renters and homeowners, it's safe, but it's not the top of the line. I like to invest in sort of like 
C plus, B minus, kind of the edge between B and C class so that there's a lot of room for it to increase in value, but it's it's not like the hood, I guess. Yeah. And do you, I'm curious, like back to like kind of like midterm rental, do you find that like people who are nurses or traveling professionals that they were like, want a certain class when they're yeah yes uh definitely they don't want to live in they want i mean because a lot of them work at night and so they don't want to be walking around where they're nervous to walk at night and so mostly like b-class neighborhoods so it's safe it's clean there's nothing sketchy it's well lit and so definitely where you what strategy you choose to invest with is going to impact what area of the market. So a lot of people will pick a market and they'll say Cincinnati, but you know, Cincinnati is a ginormous metropolitan area. And there are so many different types of neighborhoods within Cincinnati that will be suitable for different types of investment strategies. And so I'd say that's another mistake that beginners usually make is not honing down to like zip codes where and trying to align their strategy with where in the market it's best to fit that. And I kind of wanted to go back as well to like when you first started raising money. I'm curious if there's anything that you did that helped you build the confidence because I feel like it's kind of hard to ask people for money at the beginning or like when you don't have maybe too many results at the beginning. So I'm curious like mm-hmm. what helped you with building towards like getting more investors, building your confidence around the, along the way. Is there anything that helped you there? I think it's just a mindset shift. And so a lot of people, like just as you phrased it, it was like, uh, it's scary to ask people for money, but you're not asking people for money. You're providing them an opportunity to grow their wealth. And so I think that's the mindset that everybody gets stuck with. Like, oh gosh, I'm asking my mom to just borrow 20 bucks again, like just like when I was a kid. But you're actually providing someone like a really rare opportunity to work with someone they trust, not just sort in the stock market and who knows what'll happen, but they trust you, you have experience, you can provide them steady returns and it is backed by real estate. And so worst case scenario, you can always sell that house and recoup hopefully the majority of their investment. And so I think that's the biggest thing is the mindset shift from asking to actually providing. And that oftentimes helps people gain the confidence to actually ask the question. You never know if they'll see ask. A lot of people just don't even ask. Yeah, I love that reframe. And I'm curious, what other reframes do you have, particularly towards real estate or towards your own like journey that have been like huge for you? Ooh, I've never been asked that question before. Maybe it's just like a, a reframe on like to like today gratification versus delayed gratification. And I think a lot of people we're just trained to want to enjoy what we have today and not invest for the future. You know, there's a lot of like live in the now, live in the present. Like you'll see that all over Instagram and like just quit your job and travel today. But if you can choose the hard thing today, it'll set you up for the rest of your life. They always talk about that. Your time is your best asset. So when you're young, if you can, instead of choosing to blow it, if you can live a more modest lifestyle and invest it instead, you could easily become a multimillionaire by the time you're 60 because time just lets it grow. Today, I might not have a ton of cash flow, but in 30 years when all my properties are paid off, you can only imagine how much rent is going to be coming in. And I will have millions of dollars of equity because all my properties have been paid off. So I think it's kind of the reframe of sacrificing a little bit today. It's not like I don't have fun, but I intentionally live below my means so that I can invest it for the future. I love that you brought that up because I feel like it's so easy to go and put money on like vacations or you see what other people are doing versus investing that money. 
and being able to think about like, okay, like 20 years from now, I'm going to be very glad that I didn't go and have that huge vacation, but I was able to invest that in this property. Yeah. And it also depends on who you choose to surround your yourself with friend wise. So if all of your friends are blowing money or wearing Gucci belts or whatever, buying bags, then that's, that's what, what you're going to want to do because you want to fit in with your friend group. And so if you can change your friend group and surround yourself with other people who are okay with delayed gratification, it becomes very normal for you to do it. It's like becomes normal, becomes weird if you buy like a bag that's super expensive because we're also in like the delayed gratification state that I think it's encouraging to do that when you're around people who are doing the same thing. And how do you find those friends who are okay with Instagram? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I, I mean, because I graduated college and the pandemic was lasted way longer than anyone thought it would. And so I guess I would have gone to a job and probably met people who were like in college. But because the pandemic was there, I made my friend group on Instagram and who I found, you can curate your feed. I think a lot of people don't think about how everything you do on social media affects your algorithm. So if you like something, it's going to show you more of it. If you spend so much time watching it, it's going to show you more of it. And so I intentionally curated my feed to be surrounded by other investors who were just starting out, who were maybe a little bit ahead of where I wanted to be. And so that it could remind me of why I was doing what I was doing. So anyways, those people ended up becoming my friends. I'm still really good friends with the people I had when I only had a thousand followers. And so I would say if you don't have friends who are like that, you can find them, whether it's on social media or maybe through a mastermind or through meetups or that sort of thing. And going to Instagram, actually, that's a really good, interesting point of like, I feel like Instagram a lot could like suck out our energy. If like we have the wrong feed, it could be very draining. But bringing it back to something that you enjoy, people you aspire to be like, that could help so much. And with like your Instagram growth, I feel like your Instagram has been growing like crazy. Like you've just been like growing, 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 growing. So I'm curious in terms of Instagram, is there's any strategies or anything you've been doing in particular that you see has been really helping you with that growth? Honestly, it grew all very organically. I didn't mean to be like a influencer in any way. I just wanted to share my authentic journey of growing my portfolio. I started my Instagram before I even had one rental property. And it was just me like analyzing deals and attempting to buy real estate and like freaking out and then getting under contract and then asking for help from people. And so I think that a lot of people are waiting to document their journey until there's actually something worth documenting. But I do think that the most organic growth comes from starting when you're nothing and having people watch you turn into something that they then want to be like. And so there's a lot of people who I followed, who followed me like way back before I had any rental properties. And now I have many more rental properties than they have. And so I think it's interesting just for them to watch the progression from literally zero to, you know, decently experienced investor and kind of follow every step of the way. So just being authentic, if people are tired of seeing photoshopped people and like just seeing people drive in their luxury cars or whatever, like they just want to see what actually it took to get there and what it takes every day to maintain it. And so I try to share all of that and be generous with all the knowledge because people were very generous with me when I got started. I honestly can't think of too many Instagram accounts that show that like at the very beginning like when you're like trying to get a property under contract or something goes wrong or you're like just making offers like I can't think of too many that show that 
That must have been so cool to see that to you now. Yeah, it's kind of like a diary. I think it's fun to even look back and even see how like bad I was at talking to my camera because like who does that at first? And so now it's so normal. I go back and cringe at all my old contacts. Like, Ew, so ugly, like so bad. But we all start somewhere. And so I wouldn't have gotten here today if I didn't start three years ago. And so again, like never intended to be an influencer, but I think by growing a brand presence, it has been one of the most valuable things in being able to impact other people and teach other people how to invest in real estate, but also grow my own network, meet other agents, find deals, raise money. So there's just like endless reasons why people should start building a brand. Even if it's just a small brand, you don't need to have hundreds of thousands of followers. You can just have a thousand followers and you could still make an impact that way. I'm just like imagining some of those first videos. I haven't, but I'm going to scroll down and look back and see some of those first ones. <laughs> you can see I have a, a highlight called, it's like door number one okay. or something. And it's like the, it's basically the diary of myself in Cincinnati struggling to do things. So <laughs> I slept on the floor. I got food poisoning. I got my car broken into. I was all alone. And so it's definitely entertaining. So have come a long way. Well, and I love that you kept it too, because sometimes people get embarrassed or like, oh, like that video like wasn't that good. Like, I love that you keep that there so we can see the progression. Yeah, there's not that many. There's probably 350 posts or something, but I like it so that people can kind of see. I mean, people just want someone that they can relate to. And I think a lot of people inside real estate are like old white men, maybe, who are maybe 60 or so. And for a lot of people my age, like it's not really that relatable. I think there's a big financial freedom movement right now. People want control of their time and they want to see people who have done it not that long ago so that they can follow in the same path. And so I think more and more people my age are starting to pop up as sort of voices in the space to teach people how to reach financial freedom through real estate. That's great because we need more women and we need more young people in real estate to definitely shake things up. We (laughs) do. And yes, what's something that you do every day non-negotiable for you has to be part of your routine. Oh, I'm so bad. (laughs) I am a very routine person, but I have been traveling a lot. And so my routine has switched so much. And so I I can't even think of like one thing that I try to do every day. Um, I do listen to like a meditation every night though. (laughs) And so I think that helps. I have so many thoughts running through my mind. I run multiple businesses. And so sometimes it's hard to like quiet thoughts. And so every night before I go to sleep, I put on a meditation and I find that it one, I guess, shoots positivity into my brain before I sleep. And I think that can impact your dreams. And, you know, they say when you're sleeping, nice things are plain, then you just, it gets like the affirmation stuck in your brain. And it also helps me sleep better. I like that. I usually hear like morning meditations, but I never hear like nighttime meditations. Not a morning meditation person. I wish I was, but I feel like I think I have too much to do. And so I rather would do it at night when I don't have anything to do and I don't want to think about anything. And what's something right now you're excited about? It'd be any aspect of your life. I am just about to launch my next course for private money. I teach, It's called Private Money Playbook. I only teach it a few times a year, but it's a, basically an intensive live class where I teach people step-by-step how to raise private money with me. And so several students raise, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, in real time. And it's something I'm really passionate about teaching because a lot of people know how to buy real estate, but they don't know how to scale their portfolio because they're lacking money. And so I'm enrolling um, that mid-June. So that's, that's my next biggest project. That's incredible. That must be so cool to like see your students 
humans be able to raise that money at the same time and being able to see that? It's so fun. Yeah, I think it's 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 really fun. I have um like pre-recorded courses, but I really love teaching live courses too because you can see the transformation happen right in front of you. And so it's it's really cool to see people unlocking new levels of their real estate. And it's something that you take with you for the rest of your like the rest of forever. Once you learn how to raise money, it's a skill that you can use over and over again. So it's nice to be able to be a small part in people's real estate journeys. It's incredible. And I have a final question for you. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, is there anything you would want to tell her? Or if you want to tell her nothing at all, that's an option as well. (laughs) I think I was so fearless when I was a 22 year old. I honestly wish I had the same fearlessness that I did today. But it's funny when you have nothing and nothing to lose, you just you have such tenacity. And when you have things to lose, I think you become a little bit more guarded because you you've built something and you don't want to lose it. And so I would just tell my 20 year old self that like, keep up, like keep up the fearlessness and like, you go girl because you're going to buy a lot of real estate really fast and you're just going to figure it out. And so I think that was one of the most exciting. I mean, obviously we're not done yet, but it was the most exciting times in my life where I literally knew nothing and I was able to kind of like jump out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down. So I'm very, I guess, proud of myself for being able to do that. Cause I think a lot of people just never jump off the plane. And it started me off on like one of the most exciting and fulfilling journeys of my life that I never thought I'd be here today. But I'm grateful that even things like the pandemic came and shook up everything for me because I wouldn't have ended up here. Mm, it's so beautiful. Jump off the plane. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? Um, probably Instagram is the best place. My username is lattes.ian.lisas or my website lattesandlisas.com. Perfect. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.